just some highlights I wanted to make you aware of. Uh, let's just jump right in. So if you have a Bible, we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We will backtrack one verse, because I didn't get to get to verse 13 last Sunday, but pretty much we're going to just be covering chapter 9 from verses 1 through 10. If you need to borrow a Bible, there's Josh. He has a stack. He'd be happy to let you borrow if you need. Just raise your hand. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning, and I entitled our message, A Tour of the Tabernacle. A Tour of the Tabernacle, because essentially that's what the writer is going to do. He's going to bring us on a virtual tour here in chapter 9. Okay. Uh, Three things I also want to ask that you would pray for uh, this today and this coming week. Um, I don't know if you saw the news, but there was a pretty severe earthquake that took place in Haiti, I believe just a few hours ago, uh, 7.2. The last update that I saw, there's over 300 people have lost their lives. There's 1,800 people who are seriously injured. And so we want to just pray for uh, that nation, uh, it has been just getting rocked. And um, some of you might know Lillian and Frankie, they're actually from Haiti. And so, you know, it, it, in one sense, it, uh, it, it's close to home for us because we have, you know, our church family that is from that, that, that country. So we want to pray for Haiti. Also, uh, I saw in the news that I think there's a thousand troops that are on the ground in Afghanistan and a big boat with, I think, about 3,000 more that making their way there. Uh, to that nation as well. So we want to just pray uh, for the people there and certainly for our U.S. Uh, service members uh, and their families. Uh, and then lastly, of course, COVID, which, uh, yeah, we just we need to pray. God's grace and healing and protection, wisdom, everything for our leaders who are making decisions and all these things. Okay? All right. Well, um, Hebrews chapter 9, if you're there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We'll Read a couple of these verses just to give us a little bit of a platform to, to start into. So I'll just read verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 9. The writer says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread which is called the sanctuary. And then from here, he's going to just walk us through the rest of the different parts of the tabernacle. But we'll pray. We'll stop there, and we'll pray now, and then we'll unpack the rest, okay? Father, thank you for the morning. God, thank you as, as we sang earlier, just that we can find our rest in you. And Lord, we thank you for just the various ways in which you have identified yourself, you've, you've pictured yourself for us. You are uh, the, the rock of ages. You are our rock in which we can find our strength and our stability. And Lord, we, we thank you that you're also, Lord, our shepherd who leads us and guides us, who provides for us and protects us. Lord, thank you that you are a light in the darkness, that through your word you provide a lamp and a light for our feet and our path to tell us where to go and how to go and, and how to live in this, in this darkened world, Lord. We're grateful. Father, we thank you that you are the constant in this ever-changing world that's often full of confusion and chaos, 
Lord, that we can find our bearing in you. And Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we, we pray, we know that you're sovereign over all and all of these nations and all of these events that you have a plan and purpose through all of it. And so, Father, through it all, while it may create a lot of questions for us and perhaps even anxiety for us, we thank you that we can come to you, we can come to you boldly. And Lord, so that's what we're doing. God, bless our time of study. I trust that there are things that you want to say and speak and just to show us so that we might love you and worship you and serve you that much more. Lord, change us from the inside out, we pray. And we give you our time today. In Jesus' name we ask together, amen, amen. All right, would you take a moment and say hello to someone? And then you can have a seat. <laughs> so one of the things that my wife and I uh, recently have been enjoying uh, has been watching a couple of the uh, reality TV shows that have to do with, like, real estate. Um, and it began, I think, a couple of years ago. Do you remember that in the United States, at least, there was a, a U.S. show called Fixer Upper? Remember that? And so that was a longtime favorite uh, of ours. And then, and even before that, there was a, a TV show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition. Remember that one? Uh, but now there's just... there's you know, hundreds of different TV shows about remodeling, and there's tiny homes and luxury homes and, uh, you know, and shows that they flip homes. I mean, everything in between. And, and I remember as a kid, long time ago, now I'm going to date myself, a long time ago, there was a TV show called The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Anybody remember that show? That you're willing to admit? All right. Okay. You know, and that, that often, you know, Robin Leach would go, and it was celebrity homes and millionaire homes and and, uh, and I always enjoyed, you know, seeing where different people lived and how they lived in these things. And uh, although I didn't watch it, there was also TV. MTV had their own version. It was called Cribs. You remember that show? Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, for me, I always found it fascinating. Like, oh, look at this kitchen and look at that bathroom or how many bathrooms they had and, you know, and how many cars they had in their garage. I mean, just all of it, all the different places people lived and how they lived and where they lived. It was always so fascinating to me. Here in chapter 9, the writer is going to give us a, a walkthrough of God's house, if you will, a tour of the tabernacle. And if you've been with us before, or perhaps you already know this, the tabernacle was essentially a giant tent. It was this tent that God had told Moses uh, to build, and God provided the blueprints, the detailed instructions of how it was to be built, the materials that he was supposed to use, the dimensions, the fixtures, the furniture, I mean, every part of it, God said, Moses, this is what I want you to build. This is how I want you to build it. This is the material that I want you to use. And so Moses did that. And the tabernacle then was this giant tent that was a place of meeting where God would then manifest himself, uh, show up in this cloud, and Moses, and of course Aaron at that time, the first high priest, then would be able to meet with the Lord. And the tabernacle then would be later replaced by a building called the temple. And the temple was essentially, not exactly, it wasn't 
uh, a one-for-one scale, but it was essentially laid out in the same configuration. The difference, of course, main difference with the temple and the tabernacle is that the temple had stone walls. It was designed to be a, a permanent structure, and so the cloth and the animal skin coverings that made the tent and the wooden posts with the golden overlay, all of that was done, and now it became this structure built out of stones, but of course gold was still uh, an important part of it. Now both of those structures, the tabernacle and the temple, were, were national symbols for the Jewish people. It's not too unlike in many ways how the White House might be a national symbol for the United States or the Emperor's Palace in Tokyo is a, you know, a building, a national building for Japan. The temple and the tabernacle were a centerpiece for Jewish daily life. And it wasn't just worship. I mean, that was the place where people would go and pay taxes. It was a place where you would have disputes settled. It was a place where you would get permission for construction projects at your home if you wanted to add something to your house. It was a place where if you had a weird sore for primary health care, you would show up and the priests, that part of their job was to uh, you know, check you out. It'd be a, a place, of course, then for worship where people, we would bring our, our sacrifices to atone for our sin and, and offerings for worship as God had prescribed. And so those structures were very important. They were integral to, to daily life for society, again, both for the spiritual and for just the civil or civic life. And And in the building, along with the fixtures and furnitures, we have been reading about this priesthood. And all of it was necessary. All of it was this system that God had designed, and it was the operation of it all was dependent upon the workers, and the workers were the Levites. They were the priests and the high priests. And for all of that to work correctly, it, all of it was needed. And so the Hebrew audience, the Jews, they, they would understand this. So when the author tells them, gang, listen, now that you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you don't need the priesthood anymore because Jesus is our high priest. He has come into that, that role and function in your life. It, it would be a little bit, well, not a little bit, it would be a, a paradigm shift for them. It would be a huge life change for them. They grew up with that system. They grew up with the priests. They grew up with those traditions and rituals and, and all of it, the temple and the ceremonies. I mean, it was just part of their, their life. And it wasn't just something they did once a week. It wasn't just something they would do on occasion or after football season. It was completely integrated into society. Family gatherings, Again, social events, tradition, I mean, national identity, it was all tied to this. And so if the author comes and makes this claim to encourage them, you don't need that uh, the priesthood anymore. The question may arise, okay, well, if the priesthood uh, is going to be replaced, what about the rest of it? What about the temple and what about the furnishings? What about the sacrificial system? What do we do now? And so the author answers that question. 
Uh, it's one that we already have received the answer for. He told us at the beginning of chapter 8 that the main point of all that I'm trying to say to you is that we have a high priest who's in heaven. And it's just various ways in which he's explaining this. And so once again, he's going to come at it in a slightly different way for us. And, he, and the way that he does that is he begins with the walkthrough of what he calls the, the earthly sanctuary there in verse 1 of chapter 9. And gang, please understand that just as it meant something very important for the Hebrew Christian in their day and why he's writing it, it means something very important for all of us today too. Now, we may not have the same traditions. We may not have come out of the same type of culture or religious system. But we all have things in our life that once defined our lives. We all have things that we you know, had traditions to and, and a culture that we were tied to and relationships that we've had and identity that we once held on to. I mean, there was, the Bible says, a, a course or a blueprint, a map, if you will, that once guided us, a system, and we all once walked in it, in which Christ redeemed us from. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us of that reality that we once walked according to the course of this world, a pattern that was laid out. And yet we've been redeemed from that. We've been rescued from our old life. Whatever our old life was marked by, we've been set free. You, you and I, we've been born again because of Jesus Christ. And later we're going to hear the writer of Hebrews tell, tell us in chapter 10, verse 20, that by a new and living way, Jesus has opened for us. And so it was important for them to understand, and it's important for us to understand. And so we'll, we'll take this guided virtual tour of the tabernacle and see where the writer takes us. Verse 1, we read, Indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. Verse 1 is a continuation of thought from verse 13. Verse 13, he's making a conclusion, and he and he says there in verse 13, and that he says, speaking of God, a new covenant that he's made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So what is he talking about? Well, verse 1 is a continuation of thought from verse 13. And verse 13 really is just a point of interpretation from the previous Bible verse that he quoted from the Old Testament. Remember, one of the main points of the entire letter, why he's even writing this to the, this group of people in the first place, is that he wants to encourage them in their faith in Jesus Christ. They're experiencing some hardships. They're experiencing some persecution. The world around them was not friendly to them being Christians. And there was a temptation for them to say, you know what, forget it. Adios, I'm out of here. I'm going to go back to the old life. I'm going to go back to the old way. And so the writers encourage them, listen, don't do that. You don't need to go back. Everything that you need, it's found, it's provided for you in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so why would you go back? 
of course, that, that's true again for all of us. Everything that you need in life, all that we are looking for, all that we need, it's found in a relationship with the Lord. We don't need to go back to our old life. For them, the old life was back to the priesthood, back to the system, back to a temple, back to the furniture and the fixtures. So he wants to encourage them. Listen, Jesus is the high priest. And he's the only priest that's needed. You remember that he also wants to say, it's not just my opinion. It's just not my, you know, uh, fanciful musing, my idea about this. He, he wants to demonstrate to them that this is something that God instituted. This is not outside of God's will. This is all part of what God wanted. And so the way that he does that is he says, well, remember the Bible says. And he quotes from Jeremiah 31. Starting at verse 8, all of that from Jeremiah 31. And so he quotes from the prophet Jeremiah to prove to them, please understand, guys, listen, this isn't, even though this is, seems new to you, this is what God wanted all along. He's always wanted a, a, a relationship with you. It's something that he's promised. He, he's never wanted just for us to relate to him through religion and rules and regulations, but to have a loving relationship with him. And so God put an expiration date on the first covenant. Remember, we, we use the word that God had a, a planned obsolescence. What was the expiration date? was the day that Christ died. When Jesus came and he was born as a man and he lived this life on earth and fulfilled all that the uh, law and the prophets had prophesied. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. It was completed. The terms of that were to be uh, completed and now he's going to institute a new covenant and it began when he died and his blood hit planet earth, and all of the world became an altar. And so the first was made obsolete. That's what he says there at verse 13. Now at the time of the writing, the temple and the priesthood for the original audience, all of the sacrifices, they were still in operation. You could read this letter and then walk outside if you were in Jerusalem and you could see the temple, it was still there. And yet the writer says, it's becoming obsolete, it's ready to vanish away. In many ways, I suggest to you it was prophetic. Because it wouldn't be too long after the original audience got the letter within their lifetime that the Romans would come in in 70 AD and destroy the temple. Knock down all of the stones, set it ablaze and extract the gold and basically pillage all of the temple uh, furniture and fixtures. So if you go to Israel today, the temple's not there anymore. And because it's not there, guess what? The sacrificial that was system led by the priest isn't in operation anymore. Because all of it was a system, all of it was needed together. So, for almost 2,000 years, in 70 A.D., 
when the temple was destroyed, it, it's been on pause. And so the author affirms what was known, that that first covenant had an entire operating system. He says, indeed, the first covenant had its ordinances of divine service. So the first covenant contained uh, uh, an operating manual, an operations manual, procedures and, and things to do, and it included a building. There was a sanctuary. The whole, it, was, you know, it was a whole system that went together. And so it had rules and rituals, and it had specific people with roles and responsibilities. And as I mentioned earlier, all of it was needed in order for it to function. And that why, that's why, because there's no temple, there's no sacrificial system. And many of you know, the Jews, though, today, they're waiting. They are eager. They are praying for the third temple to be built. And in fact, uh, Lord willing, if we ever get to go back to Israel, one of the places that we like to go when we go on tour there is a place called the Temple Institute. And you can go there, and they have all of the furnishings, all of the fixtures. They're already made. They're just waiting for the building. And, and sometimes they'll even drive around on a huge truck, the, the, a cornerstone. They've identified through DNA testing who belongs to the, the, the priesthood, the, the Levites, the three main families. And so they're, they're ready to go. The only thing that they're waiting for now is just for the temple to be re rebuilt, for someone to come in, figure out a way between the Jews and the Arabs, the Muslims, on the Temple Mount to be rebuilt. And of course, that's one of the things that the Bible prophesies is going to happen. There, there, there will be a third temple. A form of the Mosaic Law is going to be revived. But the writer's point is to show them that, that when God replaced the priesthood, it included a replacement of the entire system. In fact, it included a replacement even of the temple. And so just as the priesthood points to Jesus, so does, and this is where his point's going to tell us, so does the building, so does the furniture, so does the fixture, so does the system. All of it, he's going to tell us in verse 9, it's all of it is symbolic. Later on in chapter, or excuse me, in verse 23, he's going to say those are copies of the things in heaven. In chapter 10, he's going to say uh, the law and all of that was a, a shadow of the things to come, good things to come. And so we'll walk through, and if that is the case, then I want to submit to you and suggest to you, how are these things symbols then of Christ? How are these things then pictures of of Christ. He says, For a tabernacle was prepared, verse 2, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now, right off the bat, I, th I thought it was a little interesting that he, the author doesn't necessarily talk about the temple, but he references the tabernacle. And I mentioned to you earlier that there are a lot of similarities between the temple and the tabernacle, but there's also some big differences. 
Now, both of them had uh, fixtures and furnishings, and each of those things had a function, and the function essentially was to permit and to promote the worship of God. But the tabernacle was much more rustic. Again, it was this giant portable tent that the Levites were to uh, pack up, well, put up, and then take down, and then pack it up, and then carry it. And they did that for, well, for more than 40 years through their wanderings in the, in the wilderness. And as I mentioned earlier, God gave the blueprints on how Moses was to build this thing. And so you can Google it, and I grabbed a couple pictures, and you can look at it later. But, you know, there's, there was an outer court, and it was all fabric or animal skin. It was all wooden. It was tied by um, ropes. And when it was time to move, God said, here's your PCS orders. Pack up. You guys relate. And so they did, and they had to pack it all up. But there was furniture on the inside, and there was furniture on the outside. And so this was the tabernacle. I think I have another picture, Seth, of well, that one's a little blurry. Look better on my computer. And so, the, you know, you, the, the children of Israel would um, camp around it. It would be in the center. There was even a specific way in which God told the tribes to align themselves around the centerpiece being the tabernacle. Again, where the glory of God would show up. So that's the tabernacle. The temple that Solomon built was very different. Solomon's motto might have been, uh, go big or go home. Uh, if the tabernacle was functional and plain and rustic, Solomon's temple was not that. It was massive compared to the tabernacle. It was spectacular. I mean, he spent uh, a small fortune on its construction. And on purpose, the grandeur of the temple was something that everybody noted. When you came into Jerusalem and, and would see the, the, the Jerusalem stone and the gold, it would sparkle. It would, be, it would be quite the sight to see. And, of course, it was elevated. It was built on top of Mount Moriah, one of the highest peaks there in the city. And so it would be incredible to see. Again, it had furniture on the inside and structures on the outside, all of it designed for the worship of the Lord. Have you guys seen the new stadium where, uh, in Okinawa City where the DQ Kings play? Man, that's a pretty stadium, isn't it? They did, a, they did a great job. I mean, or if you remember a long time ago when they built the Rycom Mall, like when, that, when the scaffolding first came down, I was like, this thing is ginormous, especially for Okinawa. I mean, they're massive and they're grand and they're, they're pretty buildings. And so the temple was, was iconic for Jerusalem. You know, people would travel for miles just to go see the building. And again, today this is where the Temple Mount exists. There's no temple there, but there are uh, the Dome of the Rock building is there and the, uh, the Muslim Al-Asqa Mosque resides. And this is kind of a famous picture now of 
of the Temple Mount. And a few of us over the years have been blessed to be able to go to Israel. And again, Lord willing, COVID permitting, want to go back. And we've been able to walk up on the Temple Mount and talk about where they believe the temple once existed and where they believe the third temple might even be built. Some suggest even alongside in this kind of patch of area off to the, uh, your, on your side, the right side of that picture. But again, those buildings were very different, and yet the writer focuses on the tabernacle. And they were furnished very similarly, and that's where the writer takes us on a tour. He doesn't talk about the things on the outside. He goes right into the inside. And inside the tabernacle, we read, there was two rooms. Seth, I think I have an overview map. Can you? There you go. Thanks. And so when you came into the main first entry area, that place was called the, the holy place or the sanctuary. And then beyond that, so just in a sense, the back room, if you will, was a smaller room called the Holy of Holies. And each of those rooms was separated by uh, a curtain, a very large, heavy veil or curtain. Now, the writer notes for us, he basically takes us on this virtual tour, and so we step into that first chamber. We're, we're walking into the first room, and he, and, he, and he makes note of the furniture that's sitting in that room. He says, here, there's the lampstand, there's the table, and the showbread. So he identifies these pieces of furniture. The, the lampstand, of course, was the menorah. It's that seven-branched uh, golden um, candle, candlestick. And it would be fueled by oil and a wick, and the priest's responsibility was to make sure that, that it never ran out of oil, and they would trim the wicks and add the wicks, and and because of the way that room was designed with the heavy curtains and veils, it provided the only light that was in that room. If all of it's symbolic, then I suggest to you that the lampstand then symbolizes Jesus. Of course, he would say of himself, I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. Moving on beyond the menorah was the table, and the table is where the showbread was placed. And there's different depictions, and when you think of bread, don't think of like, uh, you know, the Japanese eight-slice yummy bread that they make, or even, you know, the big loaves. Think of, think of like pita bread, you know, like, a, like a, a hero or a gyro, you know what I'm talking about? Like a giant tortilla. And, and the table of showbread, and some have different ideas of how it was constructed, whether it had like kind of a baker's rack and they would put 12 different loaves on this uh, table to represent the 12 different tribes of Israel. But every day, the priests, so part of the responsibility of the priests were they're also bakers. They had to bake fresh bread and bring this bread into the holy place where it would be placed every single day. Can you imagine the smell of that room? Because the smell of fresh baked bread, it's heavenly to me. But it spoke of God's provision for his people. It spoke of communion with the Lord. The idea of, of you know, breaking bread with God. 
course, Jesus himself would declare that I am the bread of life. Reference to, I think, both the manna and the bread being brought before the Lord symbolically. And Jesus would say, and whoever comes to me will never hunger, he'll never thirst, John 6.35. And so the menorah is a picture of Christ as the light of the world, and the bread is a picture of Christ as where we find our, our sustenance and communion with the Lord, that Jesus himself is the bread of life. And then verses 4 and 5, we move into the next, or excuse me, verse 3. And then behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, that's the holy of holies. And then we're told it had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And all of these things, this is interesting, the writer says, and all these things we cannot now speak in detail. So here we're, we, we move from the, oh, Seth, can you put that picture back for me? No, I'm sorry, the, the one with the map, the over, there you go, thanks. So as we, we move into the second chamber, the next room, we we come into the Holy of Holies. And according to what the writer is describing, we find two items there. But I want to pause for a second to say that's unusual. Because you normally, when you read about the Holy of Holies, there's not two pieces of furniture in there. Normally, the only thing that you find in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. But note with me, the writer says, you walk into the Holy of Holies, and there is the... The, the golden incense, or the golden censer. If you go through the Old Testament and read descriptions of the tabernacle and even the temple, the golden censer usually sat in the first chamber. It sat in the holy place or the sanctuary, as it's kind of described or depicted here. Now, that table or that altar where the incense was burned and it was offered, it, God tells us plainly, it represents the prayers of the people. It represents the prayers of the priests on behalf of the people. And there was this very special blend of oils that God uh, gave the recipe to Moses, the ingredients, and he even said, hey, listen, nobody else is allowed to make this divine um, you know, blend of oils to make it or to burn it. Now, you, you, could have any other, you could have any other essential oils. You can have your lavender and your breathe and thieves and all that. You can go for that. You know, make it and sell it and do it. But, but don't make God's blend. If you made the golden censer blend, then you're done. And don't even try to offer any other blend to the Lord. Remember Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron? And the, it's, we read in, in, in Leviticus chapter 10 that basically they try to make their own blend and offer it to the Lord, and God called it strange fire. Remember that account? And then God fired them, literally set them on fire. Anyway. So one question we could ask is, why, why is the golden censer then mentioned in the Holy of Holies? If it's normally not there, why is the writer saying, hey, when we walk into this next chamber, there it is? I don't know. 
The writer doesn't tell us. We're not given any reasons. He doesn't address the issue. So there's a lot of different theories. Uh, one thought, and I thought, okay, that, that seems to be a reasonable one that I encountered, was that one suggestion was that on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur, and the writer will talk about how the high priest and only the high priest was allowed into that room one time a year, that one of the things the high priest was commanded to do not only was to present the blood of the offering upon the mercy seat of the ark, but the other thing he was supposed to do was to offer up um, prayers and atonement through, with the golden censer in the holy place. And so it's suggested that perhaps on the Day of Atonement, he would take the, the table or the altar of incense and basically bring it inside the holy place with him on that particular day. Seems feasible. The writer says it's there, and then he also says, what else is there? Well, the Ark of the Covenant. And perhaps that's probably the most famous piece of furniture that we know of, the Ark of the Covenant, made famous, of course, by Indiana Jones and his search for it. It was a wooden box. In many ways, it was just simplistic in its design. It was a wooden box made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And uh, Seth, you have, I think I have a couple of pictures. We're told here that this box inside of it had three very important things. There was a, a, a pot, a golden pot that had the manna from the wilderness, and that was that unusual wafer-like snack that God provided for the people of, of Israel. There was Aaron's rod that had budded. Of course, it budded as proof that he was called the high priest. There was basically a showdown, and there was other people who said, I think I'm called to be the high priest. And God said, okay, well, bring your staff, and let's see. Uh, well, I'll, do, I'll let you know in the morning. And then everyone showed up in the morning, and only Aaron's rod had budded and blossomed. And so they put that in the, the ark. And then, of course, it was the tablets of the Ten Commandments that God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai. All of that then was in the box, and then on top of the box there was a special lid, and the lid of the ark was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat was constructed the two angelic beings made of solid gold, and their, and their wings would be um, forward, and their face, they would face down towards the box, and their wings would be outward stretched and forward and, and touching basically from tip to tip. And so, you have, again, you have a lot of different depictions of what that could have looked like. And the writer doesn't get into the details of it, which is interesting because he, he says at the end of verse 5, of all these things we cannot now speak in detail. I think there's a part of him that wants to explain like, how all of these things are pictures of Christ and how amazing it is. He's just going to tell us in a, in a broad stroke that in verse 9, it's all symbolic. In verse 26, it's, it's all a, a picture, a shadow. All of it portrays Christ. And again, if that is true, then the ark itself is a picture of, of Jesus. He is the place where we come to find mercy the place where we can enter in and, and worship the Lord and dialogue with God. And, and just as the mercy seat, if you will, covered the law, 
as the ark contained the law and, the, and symbolized by you know, Aaron's um, rod and the Ten Commandments, the law and the prophets, Jesus said, I came to fulfill those things. And in a sense, the mercy seat which sealed it and covers it is exactly what Christ has done for us. He has fulfilled the law and the prophets. I mean, even the picture of those two angels reminds us of a scene in the empty tomb. In John chapter 20, we read when Mary runs in, she sees two angels and we're told where the body of Jesus had once been, one at the head and one at the feet. John 20 verse 12. And so all of these things point to and they speak of Christ for us. And here the writer says, I can't get into the details now. I mean, there's so much more to unpack, but we can't get into all of it. Disapproving Zerbert from the baby, sorry. Verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. And so now that we have a, a lay of the land, we have a map of the place, now we're going to be told what hap- what's the function. Here's the furniture. What's the function of this place? Well, first of all, we read that the priests would go into, and only the priests were allowed into the first chamber, which was called the holy place. Nobody, was, nobody else was allowed in. If you weren't from the tribe of Levi, and your name wasn't picked for that rotation of that duty time, you weren't allowed in. It, was, it had restricted access. You had to have the right credentials to get in. Now, again, some of you can relate. Some of you, because of your job or your title, you get to go into rooms and places that nobody else is allowed to go in. You know a secret key or code, or you have an ID card that allows you to places that nobody else is allowed to go into. And this was the holy place. Only the priests were allowed to go in there. In fact, he doesn't talk about it, but... Maybe you already know this. If you look at the entire, uh, well, both the tabernacle and the temple, even the outer courts, it was uh, the circle, if you will, of restricting access. Hey, Seth, oh, this isn't in my notes. Hey, Seth, can you put the picture of of the temple, maybe? Uh, Is there another one? Eh... Is there another one? No? No, no, no. Right. Just go back to the other one. We'll, we'll, we'll... No, no, no. The one that you just had, I'm sorry. I'm not being very... Okay, we'll just leave it there. So, so the, the outer court, if you can see it, that was, that was called the court of the Gentiles. And so anybody was allowed to go. Jew and Gentile, you're allowed to go into that area. When you came into the next area, it was called the court of the women. And so the first dividing line then was if you were Jewish. If you were a Gentile, regardless if you were a boy or a girl, you couldn't go. But then everybody Jewish was allowed into the next inner court, which is called the court of the, uh, the women. But then from there, when you went into the next court, it was the court of the Israelite. And so women weren't allowed into that court. Then, then the next filtering line was right from Jew, all Jews, and then just Jewish men, they're allowed into the next courtyard. 
And then the next one is the holy place. And you weren't allowed in unless you were the priest and unless you were on duty, if you will. And so it was more restrictive as you got to the sanctuary. So the, regu- the priests, we're told, would regularly, regularly enter into the holy place. And what would they do there? Well, it says they would perform the services. They had a job. They had a function in the, in the holy place. And part of their job was to bake the bread, as I mentioned, and to bring in the bread and take out the old bread. Part of their job was to make sure the, the oil, there was enough oil in the menorah, that the wicks were right, and they, and, you know, they were burning constantly. Part of their job was to put incense on the altar when it was in the holy place and to offer prayers. In fact, you remember when we um, first meet John the Baptist's mom and dad? Anybody know their names for a thousand points? Anybody know his, his mom's name? Elizabeth, very good. And dad's name? Zacharias. All right. And so in Luke chapter 1, you can look at it later, but... In Luke chapter 1, we're introduced to Zacharias, and we're told he's a priest. In fact, even Elizabeth's line, they're, they're, they're both from priestly families. And we're told that it was his turn. Like, there was a rotation. So all of a sudden, he looked, he's on the duty roster, and it's his time to go serve. And, and part of his job was he had to take care of the incense. You know, if you ever work fast food, and you're like, okay, today you're the grill guy, and you're the fry guy, he's like the fry guy. He's... He's the incense guy for that time. And so there's a lot of work that took place at the temple, outside and inside. Again, we didn't even get to the outside furniture. And it wasn't just these things. They were constantly busy. They had to clean all the time. They were doing building inspections and pre-medical inspections. They helped people resolve conflicts. They... Again, you know, we're like butchers, and so they were cutting the meat, and they were like barbecue chefs, and they were preparing the offerings and grilling it and cooking these, the, the meat on the giant altar, uh, this giant grill. And in many ways, it, it wasn't glamorous. It was gritty. There was a lot of blood involved and dirt involved and... and um, ashes. They had to like shovel the ashes and carry them outside. And the changing of the, the water and the bronze and laver that would get all bloody. They had to clean. They had to pack. They had to move. I mean, it was, it was, it was just activity. It was very busy. And in many ways, it's like ministry today. I mean, you know, for us, there, there's the fun stuff like VBS and barbecuing at the beach and having baptisms, missions, you know, the ground cafe. and that, that, Those are the fun things. Baby dedications, weddings. But there's also a lot of work that needs to happen at God's house. And gang, if I can segue just a little bit, there is a big important difference today versus the old times, Old Testament times. And that is this, and I'll just make a point out of us observing the fact that the priests go into the first place. When we get to the New Testament, the Bible tells us 
all of us have been called into the priesthood. Peter says that you and I are part of a royal priesthood. We have been called, like the Levites, out of this world to God himself to serve the Lord, and we serve the Lord by serving each other. And so God, in one sense, calls all of us into the priesthood. All of us are called to serve. And if I can make a little bit of a plug, there's a lot that's needed here, in this place, in this God's house here. There's a lot of different ministries that need your help. We have nursery, we have the kids' ministry, and youth, and ushers, and worship, and parking, and prayer, uh, hospitality. We have the manna ministry that makes meals for families that, you know, are having babies or in the hospital, the media, the soundboard, and many more. And gang, at times it's fun and it's glorious, but other times it's you're changing dirty diapers, it's sweeping the stairs, you're making sure there's toilet paper in the bathrooms, it's uh, teaching cute, very cute, very rambunctious kids that need Jesus, just like you and I do. Well, only the priests were allowed into the first part. They performed the services. God opens the door for us. We're all allowed in. We all get to perform the services. But verse 7, it says, But into the second part of only the high priest went alone once a year. And notice it says, And not without blood, which he offered for himself and then for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And so now the second chamber, though, we read, was even more restricted. Because it couldn't just be any priest that walked into that place. You could only be the high priest. And guess what? You couldn't go any time that you wanted to. You could only go once a year on a special day called the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And then we're told, and you didn't go just walking in. It was... That day was very specific. You went in with the blood of a sacrifice, and your responsibility was then to sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. And that was done to make atonement, as we read there, for his own sins and also for the sins of the nation. Now, we're not going to unpack all of it because the writer is going to do that for us, starting at verse 11, and we'll get there next week. He's going to explain all of the symbolism in greater detail, and he's going to talk about why the blood, and that word blood is going to show up in almost every single verse from verse 11 to the end of the chapter, and, and why the blood was so important. Why did God require that? What did it mean? And so next week, we're going to see what the deal is with all the blood. But the high priest goes in not without blood, meaning a sacrifice. And he gave it for himself and for the people. Now, in verse 8, we're told that the Holy Spirit was indicating this. And so the idea is, the Holy Spirit was saying, hey, listen, this is a picture. This is a symbol. This is what it represents. 
that the way into the holiest of all, so that last chamber, it was not yet made manifest, or it wasn't opened yet, while the first tabernacle was still standing, verse 9, because it was symbolic. You guys tracking okay? Here's what God was doing. He says, here's what the Holy Spirit was telling us. The way into the Holy of Holies wasn't accessible to us while the first tabernacle, with the first system, with the first priest, when all of that was still around and in operation, you couldn't get in. And we'd say, yeah, of course, we understand that. Only the high priest is allowed to go in. You have to have a special you know, job in order to go in, and you can only go in once a year to get in. And so the writer's point really is to say, okay, under the old system, you couldn't come to God anytime you wanted. The whole system didn't permit you to come to the Lord. The whole system, if you look at it, prevented you in some ways to come to the Lord. It was increasingly restrictive. The Old Testament, as he, remember he said earlier, it, there's a weakness there. And what was the weakness? Well, you just couldn't come to God. You had these barriers that you had to get through and ultimately to get even into the, the, the place to come into the place of the presence of God, it was only for one person and once a year. And so his point is that it was restrictive. It was preventive. It wasn't permissive. It was like the Old Testament version of social distancing. Stay back Stand over there. Don't come near. Don't come close. Let only the trained professionals, they're the only ones who are allowed to come close. And so why does he walk us through all of this? Why does he explain all of this? It's the same point that he's making before. He just approaches it in a different way. That's why he's been saying, gang, Jesus is so much better. Don't you see how Christ is so much better? The old way with all of its things you couldn't just go to the Lord. You had to get through these barriers. The way of the old covenant wasn't come near, come close. It was you could not come close. And what a contrast to the gospel where Jesus says, come and see and come and taste and come and dine. The Bible says, and the Spirit says, come. It is so much better because of what Christ has done. Christ has allowed us to draw near. That we get to. We don't have to go through the barriers. We don't have to go through intermediates. The door's wide open to you because God loves you. And he even says, come as you are. You know, our whole series entitled just took that freight, draw near, so that we could draw near to the Lord. Maybe you already know this, but when Jesus died, remember I said, when was the, when was the first mean obsolete? And I told you earlier, it's when Jesus died. His blood hit the ground, and when his blood hit the ground, just as the blood atones for the sins on the 
mercy seat makes it clean, when the blood of Christ, the perfect sacrifice, hit the ground, planted earth, then all the world became an altar. That's why we can worship anywhere. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We don't have to go into the Holy of Holies. You could be in your car and worship God. You could be at Blue Seal and worship the Lord. That's a place to glorify God, right? But when Jesus died on the cross, one of the things that happened right when he gave up his spirit is we read that the veil, the curtain of the temple, it ripped in two. Anybody know how it ripped? How did it rip? Anybody know? From the top to the bottom. I mean, so picturesque, symbolic, as though God himself ripped open the curtain for us. The separation was done away with. And, and that's what he's saying, you know, here in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is letting us know that while that first system existed, we couldn't get into there. But God did away with it. He made it obsolete. Jesus fulfilled it. And then when he died, the veil was ripped in two, and then we can come in. And again, he's going he's gonna to get into more detail of this. In chapter 10, he's going to say, now by a... Uh, by his death through a living way, which is his very flesh, we can come in. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 and 20. And, and so the main point of this is because of what Christ has done for you and me, all of those multiple barriers, the outer court, the inner court, the curtain and the wall, the holy place, all of that, the separation has been removed. Jew and Gentile, female and male, regardless of who you are, all of us can draw into the very presence of the Lord anytime that you want. And in verse 9, he says, because the whole thing was symbolic. For the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are being offered, they cannot make him, they cannot make you or the priest who performed the service perfect in regards to the conscience or the soul. Why? Verse 10. Because it concerned the outward things. It concerned only with foods and drinks and washings and all of the fleshly. The idea is that all of the outward regulations and all of that was there until the time of reformation. Until there, God said, hey, I'm changing it. The whole thing was purposely symbolic. The priest, the building, the furniture, the system, all of it to show our need for Jesus. All of the rules and regulations, the food restrictions, the clothing restrictions, the day in which you worship, the ceremonies, the festivals, all of it is temporary. Again, it was to show us we cannot live perfectly. It was to show us the reality of our sin and then our constant need to have to be forgiven, our constant need to have to be covered. And, and gang, you know, for us, there's still a tendency, a danger for us to want to just focus in on the outward things, making ourselves look good outwardly. But the question really he gets to is like, you can look good outwardly. This, this provided for that, but how do you wash 
You can wash your hands and wash the outside, but how do you wash your heart? How do you wash your soul from the darkness and the junk and the dirt that all of us have? He's saying, listen, none of those things can make your heart clean. None of those things can wash your soul. It does nothing for the conscience. Only the blood of Christ can wash us and make us clean. And that's where he takes the conversation, by the way. From, chapter, from verse 11 and on. But let me, I'm going to just make an, an auxiliary point for us. Because one of the things I think what the writer's trying to do is say, listen, don't get caught up in all of that, that, those things. Don't get caught up in the system and the furniture, and as beautiful it is, and as the fixtures are meaningful, they, they had a place, and it was temporary. Because the substance really is, is Christ. And, and I think the, the auxiliary for us, if I can just kind of pull up the principle, is we don't want to get tied up into the temporary things of life either. We don't want to become fixated on the fixtures of this life. In many ways, this is a reminder that something better is coming. It's a reminder for us that this is not our home. We're just passing through. Remember the disciples, as Jesus was on the Temple Mount and they're leaving? And it's right before he's going to get arrested. And as they're leaving the Temple Mount, even the disciples who grew up there, they've seen it, you know, a thousand times. They look at the temple and they begin to marvel. They're like, man, look at these stones. Look how beautiful this place is. And it was. But Jesus says to them, hey guys, I tell you this, don't marvel at those stones. Because truly I tell you that in a little bit, they're all going to be knocked down. One stone isn't going to repaint upon another. Mark chapter 13, verse 2. Oh, the temple was their tradition. It was part of their national identity. It was part of their trust. They would swear oaths on the temple. They found their security from a system and their identity from an institution. And Jesus says, what will you do when it all comes crashing down? And gang, so here's what I want to close. What is true for the Jews can be true for us too. We can get really focused on things. We can be get focused on the furniture and fixtures, and we can be consumed with stuff or getting stuff and acquiring stuff. And so we get bigger houses or we rent rental storage units. And the danger for us is we can forget or neglect the greater mission in life. Why did God give you that job? Why did God bless you with those resources? Why do you have the platform that you do and the influence that you do? Well, it's easy for us to find our identity in an institution or to find our value defined by things that are becoming obsolete and ready to vanish away, as he says in verse 13 of chapter 8. What will you do when that happens? 
See, the danger for many of us is we don't give the proper place for those things. Pursuits and passions and positions, accomplishments. We can easily allow them to stand as substitutes for worship and for prayer and for sacrifice. Right? We can be guilty of saying, oh, we love the Lord, but find ourselves offering strange fire. Our own works, our attempts that we think, oh, God will be pleased by this, and yet God never ordained. Right? We live in a world where men esteem buildings. They're enamored with rocks. And all of it's going to come crumbling down. What appears to be stable in this life and secure Listen, we already know, the Bible tells us plainly, it's destined to collapse and crumble. Right? Jesus gave a parable at a rich man who, man, he did well. And, and because he was blessed, he begins to talk to himself and say, what am I going to do with all of this? I know, I'm going to build a bigger house. I'm going to build a bigger barn. And I'm going to say to myself, soul, just put it in a cruise control and I'm going to enjoy And Jesus says that God said to him, you are a fool. Because this very night your life is going to be taken from you. And then who's going to receive what you've accumulated? And then his commentary is, this is how it's going to be for anyone who stores up treasure for himself on this side of eternity and is not rich towards the Lord. And the idea being, that, or excuse me, Luke chapter 12, by the way, that he had no regard for why God would bless him. He just thought, it's all for me. King, th this world is ready to vanish away. And Christ has come to set us free. And he set us free from sin and from self, and I would say from stuff and from the old system. And so don't go back. Don't get tied to the temporary. Don't get focused on the acquisition of things and finding identity in earthly institutions. Because you are called to better things. You are called to greater things. A greater hope with a greater promise. And he'll even tell us in verse 11, Christ came of good things to come. Do you know he's talking about for you in your life of good things to come? So, the tour of the tabernacle brings us to this end. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Once again, your word is so rich. Lord, I pray that these things that we observed and some of the observations and applications that we've made, Lord, that, well, you would continue just to speak to our hearts. God, help us not to get so fixated on this world. I believe that soon and very soon you're coming back. And so God, help us to invest in the bank of heaven. To be busy about what you've called us to do. Lord, that we would enjoy this life and have life abundant, but Lord, that we wouldn't neglect really the greater thing that you have called us to and why we've been so blessed. Help us not to lose focus of that, Lord.
the greater things to come. We love you and we praise you and we pray this in Jesus' name together. Amen. 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 Hey, I love you guys.